0: This is a Humble Man Recording.
1: Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Sky and Hayden King. One day I'm gonna get Eric to cut all the scene that you've done in this car <laughs> and release it. You'll
0: separately. be able to blackmail me with that.
1: You're you're like a decent singer. And it never ma- it never makes it into the podcast, but
0: <laughs> uh, so that was Tribe Called Red with Indian Cars, their cover of Keith's Cold Remix rather of uh, Keith's Cold's classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking about using that as our season two music maybe maybe i don't know what do we have to pay a tribe called red i have no
1: idea um we're just uh currently stealing the songs that are in our intro and outro please don't report us um joanne Shenandoah and kisakola we are doing it out of admiration and love uh for your cultural iconotry not uh, uh but yeah
0: not I mean, just outright theft?
1: Yeah, but also, I mean, are we making a profit off of it? No.
0: We have never seen a dime.
1: This this podcast, this podcast co- does nothing but cost us money. <laughs>
0: uh, and I think there's some kind of rules, right? If you only use a couple seconds of a song, you're allowed to do that. But
1: I think it, if yeah, you maybe. use
0: it for commercial use in other ways. You know, it's like when Donald Trump uses Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen, and Bruce Springsteen has to threaten to sue him to stop yeah. using at rallies. Mm-hmm. And stuff. Yeah. Tribe Called Red's going to come after us. Hopefully. We hate your podcast. <laughs> uh, so how's it going, Courtney?
1: Uh, pretty good. Uh, We're here on the road. Uh, A little bit of rain.
0: But it was a beautiful day.
1: It was a beautiful day, yeah.
0: I think in our last podcast, we were hailing the arrival of spring, and then it got very, very cold.
1: hmm Yep.
0: It feels like spring's really here now. Uh, I
1: think it's supposed to get cold again, but... And we're yeah. going to be traveling to different parts of the world, so... With That's definitely right. not spring-like temperatures, so...
0: Yeah, just when spring arrives here, I'm going north on two trips where it'll be much cooler.
1: hmm hmm Hopefully we get our podcast shit together, though, and we don't miss any episodes weekly, even though we won't be seeing each other next week.
0: Season two, we gotta take this seriously. Our first year, people cut us some slack, but, you know, season two, you gotta be more polished, more prepared, maybe. Maybe. Do you we feel got, prepared? No. we got a lot of great feedback from our last episode
1: yeah we did it was much appreciated thank you all for listening and sharing and sharing our social media it was very appreciated
0: Um, now before we start ranting i'm i'm afraid to say this but uh i was at an event tonight Mm -hmm. for mapuche land defenders at ryerson university and you know there's just more there's more categories of the settler that we can add to the you know, the, the one that we missed last, last in, our, in our podcast was the white people that go to events and then mm-hmm. will interject very early in the, in the evening to say, can you speak louder? Can you mm-hmm. put the microphone closer to your mouth? Native people don't do that. We'll yeah. just like sit back and <laughs> like try mm-hmm. to listen harder out <laughs> of respect. Especially if you have like an honored guest in your territory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But white people... For sure. Oh, we can't hear you. We'd never. I,
1: I. cannot think of any circumstance where I've heard like a native person talking, talking softly, where anyone has been like, "Hey, speak up, strain yourself more to be louder." <laughs> That's never ever happened. It's always just like, scooch a little bit closer and just be extra quiet and keep extra still so you can hear them.
0: It's actually kind of surprising because you're Mohawk.
1: <laughs> What's that supposed to mean? Well, I just mean <laughs> if
0: there's any native people that are like, speak up. It's gonna be mohawks.
1: Mm-mm, nope. No, we are uh, diligent listeners. Um,
0: diligent listeners. Yeah. If you we say are, so.
1: A kind and loving people. Okay. Mhm. All right. Yeah.
0: We'll let that one slide. <laughs> so I was at an event tonight. Uh, Want to try to raise awareness for these folks in. They're in South Chile, on the border of Argentina. In fact, the Mapu- Mapuche nation span, crosses the border. There was something that's really interesting. This one guy, Miguel Molin, talked. Uh, he was talking about borders and how the border is, you know, a fiction to them, and how how the, the Mapuche nation obviously crosses the border, but it's resulted in all of these, uh, you know, challenges. He calls it um, dispossession by documentation. I think it's really interesting if you're a community like Aquisasni or. Uh, Blackfoot community or Musqueam community, Nishnabek community on the border, and, and having that that separate you. But he was talking about how uh, they have their own conception of borders and territories, and it's less, you know, where you know where uh, where two political communities stop, and more about where two politi- two political communities meet. And just that subtle sort of shift in conceptualization, I think, is pretty profound when it comes to Western versus uh, indigenous conceptions of political community, but aside from that, I mean, these are, as I said, the Mapuche Nation, they're struggling against uh, hydroelectric projects, against forestry uh, that is displacing them and um, cutting off the water supply industries, taking up so much water that there's no water left for anybody else or for the Mapuche, or for, the, uh, for their livestock or agriculture. Um, and uh, it was a pretty powerful event. And, and uh, the, the, one of the leaders of, of the Mapuches named Alberto um, Curamil, he actually won the Goldman Prize this year because they stopped some of these hydroelectric dams uh, through pro- protests, through courts, uh, all the strategies that they could employ, build a broad-based solidarity. And uh, then as soon as it, you know, it was announced that he was going to win this prize the they call it the Nobel Peace Prize of Environmentalism the state fabricated some charges and uh, he's been in jail for the past nine months so he couldn't even accept the award and his daughter Beline and uh, and Miguel uh, Malin were there and, and they talked all about their struggle so uh, I guess this context serves two purposes first go and learn about uh, what the Mapuche are up against and support them, but also, you know, we had sort of talked about a podcast topic based on something that Murray Sinclair had to say uh, last week, which was about violence and when Indigenous peoples are permitted to use violence. And I was just listening to them and thinking about that. You know, what is the threshold for violence? You know, these they spoke very bluntly, candidly, honestly, about being survivors of genocide. They're the survivors of genocide trying to defend what they have left. You know, if there is any circumstance under which violence is permissible, it would probably be them. Um, So, what circumstances, under what circumstances, is violence acceptable, permissible for Indigenous people? This is basically... What we're talking about this week on the podcast that's a great intro we're going from one inflammatory topic right into the next Bam. season two
1: okay so yeah so we talked a little bit about um murray sinclair's interview that he did and i'm a little bit i don't know what the word is disappointed but i think there's a little bit of clarity to be had around the article or the headline that you saw circulating on social media and twitter where it made it seem like Murray Sinclair was like calling for a violent uprising or revolution or some sort of that's how I was seeing it interpreted or shared. But he actually was quoting Fannin,
0: uh, France Fanon, and, on, yes. yes,
1: and uh, was talking about that and giving that as like a contextualization for what it's like for a colonized people and how do you, uh, I guess, respond to colonialism. Did you want to actually? I think we owe. Uh, Murray, some contextualization here. So you
0: have—I got the quote. You have me. the quote. Okay, read the first quote. of all. Murray Sinclair citing Franz Fanon mm-hmm. I mean, what universe are we? This is th- what happened to reconciliation. <laughs> you know, I, I, when I read the headline, I didn't, I didn't necessarily think like, oh, Murray Sinclair is out there, fomenting, mm-hmm. you know, violent rebellion. But <laughs> I guess I was just like, wow, Murray Sinclair read Franz Fanon <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how he got here, but mm-hmm. if he's quoting Fanon and warning about violence, then you know the reconciliatory project, Reconcilia- Project Reconciliation, has got to be uh, nearing an end. You know, actually, there's an organization called Project Reconciliation. Yeah. I just, I just, I just heard about them. Anyway, so the headline this was a, a wide ranging, quote unquote, wide ranging interview with Murray Sinclair. It was a 23 minute uh, interview and talked about his childhood, about being a father. But he also talked about his fears for what, are, what will happen in Canada if the state doesn't genuinely respond to uh, Indigenous people. So the headline was, quote, Murray Sinclair warns of violent rebellion if Indigenous rights continue to be oppressed. Yeah, that's, that's pretty provocative. <clears throat> so he goes on uh, in the actual text version of the article and says... Well, there's a social philosopher by the name of Franz Fanon who wrote in 1948 that when you have a colonized people who've been oppressed by one society, first of all, they tend to submit to the colonization oppression. But then when they start to recognize what they're experiencing, they'll resist. And that resistance is then quashed. Then they'll start taking out their frustrations upon themselves. And so we see the high rates of personal, uh, personal abuse grow. Next, they take it out on their friends, family, and their community. But eventually they'll take it out take out the violence on the oppressor and then you have a rebellion. My view is that if we continue to ignore what society is doing to Indigenous peoples in terms of poverty, the education failure rates, and I'm not talking about individuals who are, we are failing, I'm talking about the education system is failing and the child welfare rates that we are likely to be creating, we are likely to be creating a population of young Indigenous people who will be prone to thinking uh, about acting out violently against society. Your take, Courtney?
1: Um, I think that <sighs> there's a there's a point that I think in the the midst of that, right? Is, or I guess that doesn't like, where I would see the point that he's making as being, um, that it's not the people's fault. You know what I mean? Like the oppressed people, mm-hmm. like them resisting oppression, like in the way that it does. That is a, that is itself a, a product of colonization, right? Like the state makes that a necessary kind of reaction to the conditions that they put people into, and aside from being completely annihilated, like what other option do you have if you want to continue to live? Uh
0: huh. Uh huh. So,
1: I mean, I also, you, as you point, as you've already pointed out in this podcast, I'm a rowdy Mohawk we are prone to, uh, you know, we love a good tire fire, love a good blockade, Uh, you know. We're not, um, to say that, you know, violent or active resistance is something that's upcoming is, I think, a false kind of thing to say because there's been many instances of violence or, like, radical resistance within my lifetime within you know many different instances over the past like several decades so i don't know whether we've ever stopped or whether those Uh two things exist Uh in isolation of one another like i don't think that there's a place where like yes um you know high suicide rates violence in our communities domestic violence that is where we are hurting one another because of colonization but we are also have been continually having a you know uh whether it's like a violent resistance or a um
0: Assertive active, response. Yeah,
1: assertive.
0: Well, that's interesting yeah. because what Murray Sinclair does start the quote by saying, mm-hmm. you know, that Fanon's theory is that people are colonized and they submit to that colonization. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Sinclair's interpretation. But in the Canadian context or the American context, I think your point is really a good one because indigenous people have never... Fully submitted. There's an ongoing resistance. You know, when I think about settler colonialism, I think of it as, you know, settler colonialism attempting to uh, eradicate Indigenous people and Indigenous people responding and never quite allowing settler colonialism to complete the job, and then settler colonialism in turn responds, grows in aggression or grows, develops new tactics, and then Indigenous peoples respond and. Uh, I think we've talked a little bit about the dynamics of settler colonialism from my perspective, uh, uh, at least. So I think there's that there's that one question to raise you know about whether or not there is this break. like indigenous people were colonized violently, uh, and now it's sort of after the fact this resistance emerges and their contemplation of violence. But really, I think the theory is more this ongoing, um, ongoing violence that occurs between, you know, the, Canada uh, perpetrating violence and then Indigenous peoples mm-hmm. responding, um, and that is, I think, in many ways, an inherently violent process through time.
1: Yeah, and I think part of it as well is, you know, that both it's ongoing, but also framing it within a specific context of like the failed effort at reconciliation that's happening. Right, that if reconciliation. Is failing or has failed. I mean, I think I don't think it ever was like meaningfully undertaken to begin with. That that false uh, effort or the failure to execute that is the kind of thing is another iteration of this cycle where that the failure to meaningfully recognize or you know resolve issues of colonialism will then lead to um, the more active and deliberate resistance of the oppressed people.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that that is i I gotta i gotta be honest when i when i heard this for the first time i immediately thought of uh sean atleo i thought of uh the auditor general i think the report on education from 2008 2009 and in both both of those cases like sean atleo would say uh you know if we don't do something i can't i can't i can't control the young native population you know they're upset What I don't know what they're gonna do violence Mm -hmm. Uh, so he used it as like a negotiating tactic basically Mm -hmm. and then on the other hand you had the auditor general who said Canadians you better Mm -hmm. do something because if you don't do something you're gonna have this large Mm -hmm. very fast-growing young indigenous population with no education no opportunities for quote-unquote advancement in Canadian society and you're gonna be in trouble because you're either gonna have to deal with a burgeoning population of unemployed indigenous people that need support from the state, or you're gonna have to deal with a burgeoning population that is fed up and and willing and uh, have nothing else to lose but to resort to violence. And so that we've heard this narrative before from on the one hand First Nation politicians, political leaders, and then on the other hand the Canadian state itself and so it's actually an old narrative and and I have to wonder whether Murray Sinclair genuinely feels this or he is part of that historic trend of using indigenous peoples as pawns to pursue the political agenda now could be both and I'm not saying that this is some sort of um, uh, you know disingenuous maneuver on his part not at all but I, I guess I would just couch it in, mm-hmm. in previous efforts to frame Native people as potentially violent.
1: I think that's really, really good uh, to put it out. But I think an also, another thing, too, is that it absolves the Indigenous people ourselves, like the AFN and these other, you know, the National Indigenous Organizations, that don't do policy well, they don't do public consultation well, they don't involve grassroots people, and they place their failure to develop truly community and grassroots led policy at the hands of oppression and not their own not the way that they have asserted classism within our communities uh-huh. and the way that they establish and maintain a hierarchy of who gets heard when and why into the decision making that they have done right so they can they can you know whoever is in these positions of power can say, "Well, you know, it's not because of us and our failure to hear our own communities and what their aspirations are, and actually deal with the problems they're facing. It's actually like redirecting it at Canada instead of them being able to produce um, and do the work that is truly like decolonial or anti-colonial."
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair, um, and I, I suppose that sort of narrative does. Further that conversation like Canada look at yourself this is what's happening you're you're continuing to uh, uh, marginalize oppress discriminate against indigenous people to the point where violence is actually being considered uh, an appropriate response Um, and of course I don't you know that doesn't necessarily mitigate what we said earlier we can cite all the examples where indigenous people had to defend themselves but that's sort of the point isn't it because I don't think much of indigenous, much violence that comes from indigenous people at least violence towards the state, individuals or institutions uh, comes from a place of defense. You you can cite all the violent conflicts, whether it's Gustafson's Lake, whether it's Iprawaj, whether it's Caledonia, whether it's Oka of course um, Anishinaabe Park I mean all of those are defense, they're taking up arms in, in cause of uh, defending communities and lands.
1: Yeah, it's not like a coordinated assault on the state. I think is what you're trying to say, right? Like it's not like any. Well, it's not like anyone is. These are their reactions to, and kind of where communities will say like, no, we're set, we're we're setting a boundary. We're saying, and that's kind of what happened in Caledonia right? It's like people saying like, no, we've had all, a lot of these abuses. We've had we don't haven't heard that we don't agree with this land use. We're saying no, and communities will put down a a firm line and say that this is we're we're not going to let this uh, happen, or we're not, we're, we have to. At at what point are you going to say stop, right? And and stop this kind of like incremental and gradual assertions of rights that like are really only benefiting a very small proportion of indigenous people and especially moreover as, you know, as we see reconciliation take hold in more mainstream institutions, like universities, actually being taken up by white people who are pretending to be Indigenous.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Yes, the, uh, those people. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, when you think about it, really, it's usually... I mean, I think the high-profile cases. It was Caledonia. It was women standing up to bulldozers. Uh, and LC Bug Bugdog. It was women standing up to uh, a line of um, uh, police officers, RCMP. I mean, that trend that trend is common. And then usually the violence ensues. Uh, Unistaten, another example. Usually the violence ensues. But let's say let's take for instance. Now, should they have? And that's a poor way to phrase the question, but. Um, what are under what circumstances should they have armed themselves you know what I mean so here, here come the RCMP they're coming into uh, Wet'suwet'en territory um, and uh, they're going to come across that blockade hey, now if the RCMP know that you're armed know that you've armed yourself it would be a different story if violence unfolded then it would be a different story Are there circumstances that are similar to Oka today uh, or similar to Gustafson's Lake today where you would say, yeah, it's wise to arm yourself. There's a genocidal monster knocking at your door.
1: I think in those instances, what I struggle and what I, I think constantly question myself at is like not necessarily what becomes irreconcilable for me um in like like what is what makes me human right and what affirms Uh my humanity and part of my humanity and understanding my own existence and place in creation is the recognition of other people's humanity and that I'm judged by that relationship and I don't think there are necessarily many instances where I would say that violence is necessary mm-hmm. and like maybe as a Mohawk it's like not accurate but like my cultural understanding comes from good mindedness and being peaceful and right. you know we have stories and histories and laws in our culture around not being violent and even when the RCMP and the OPP I'd say the OPP. When the OPP, you know, marched into our community and they were in riot gear and they were arresting people and they had assault weapons, like, we were able to resist. There was a lot of violence and our community was harmed and a lot of people were harmed, but we, it almost, it's, is it like optically better? You know what I mean? To like not be the ones that are there bringing assault rifles and guns?
0: Like, you're not gonna win over the Canadian population by.
1: Yeah, exactly. They're not for that, right? They did not. Th- They're they,
0: not for that. They did
1: not. what well, we, <laughs> if, if, if the came with any kind of weapon, it was the bulldozer that we ripped the road up with,
0: right.
1: <laughs> and that kind of thing, right? Like that's. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't know, right? I don't know if we've reached that point. I don't know if I would feel comfortable saying like, that's where we're at. But at the same time, I look at the state violence that we experience and the. The harms that our community face that you can specifically point to as being a part of colonialism, whether it's people, children being kidnapped, women being murdered, uh, children being assaulted and abused and harmed and killed when they're in child welfare systems, uh, the men that we have lost to violence and the communities that we have that are ravaged by incarceration and drug addiction. I think of that. I think of all the people that we lose all the time and then it's like, you know, are it's what is it? Death by a thousand cuts, is that what it is?
0: Maybe. Uh, yes, death by many mm-hmm. types of colonial violence. Yeah. Uh, but I mean I don't know, maybe our maybe our kids will you know Your
1: kids, I don't have
0: kids. My kids the future generation.
1: My generations of cats, my grand-cats. say. You know what,
0: you really should have taken up mm-hmm. uh, you know, some violent aggression. Against these colonizers, because look where we are. You know, 25 years after your uh, your generation, you know, didn't do anything to address the issues. But do I, you
1: wish I, your grandparents did? Well,
0: I was just I was going to get to that, okay. and I, and I don't think so. No, I, I don't think so. And I I really appreciate what you have to say about the good mind, and it's sort of ironic in some ways that Sinclair is citing Fanon on violence, because in that book, The Wretched of the Earth, that, that he's quoting, there is a very long introduction by Jean Paul Sartre. It's actually called On Violence, where Sartre justifies the use of violence in colonial context. And, of course, this is not an indigenous man. He's a French philosopher. Uh, but, nonetheless, he makes this... He prefaces the book with this long argument for violence. And then Fanon, like Nietzsche before him, and maybe Glenn Coulthard afterwards, talk about the power of anger and resentment and how that can be a motivating force. and And... Uh, and and empowering in some ways and that can push you to action, provocative action, assertive action, but not necessarily violence because what violence does uh, being the aggressor aggressor, uh, as opposed to being defensive what it does to your community actually reinforces the harms that are already there, you know, the personal harms the community harms, like what does that do to the collective psyche of the community and the individual when you decide, okay, I'm going to be Violent in this case, I'm going to uh, uh, um, use physical violence to, to 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 respond. And I think that that's a really important point, and probably why you have not, and probably will not see the type of quote-unquote rebellion that Murray Sinclair is talking about, because you know it's uh, ultimately going to be more harmful. And 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 what will it achieve in the long run?
1: and I think that's always the prevailing I think rationale that's prevailed in every kind of like direct action I've been involved in where people always come to that conclusion right like if you're continuing to escalate violence or you're continuing to escalate issues it's not actually getting you closer to the goals that you're trying to achieve right whether it's you know uh redefining how land is going to be used um Resource extraction or development escalating that harm isn't isn't toward where you want to go, right? We're not actually trying. Those aren't communities that we're trying to build. Yeah, indigenous communities aren't trying to you know start a race war or you know a war with settler colonialism. We are trying to live and we are trying to exist and exist in our lands and territories, and that is not you know. And we've always been. Uh, mindful of the reality that we're sharing land and territory and resources, right? And what does the equitable, you know, what's equity, what's equality in those situations, and what's going to create, uh, you know, a bright, meaningful future for for mm-hmm. coming generations, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I think a lot of Indigenous futurism or vision of the of the of the future definitely is rooted in cultural revitalization, cultural resurgence. Uh, bringing back norms of uh, good relations and ethics between one another and and almost exclusively you know those don't include violence so you know when I hear S- Sarah Hunt or someone talking about the punishment for raping women by you know beheading or something like that, mm-hmm. that I think that they were used but maybe more internally in our communities. But at the end of the day, so say let's just say you take the indigenous resurgence philosophy to the, its logical end. So you've turned inward. You're building your communities. You're vi- revitalizing language. You're vi- revitalizing culture. Your land-based economies. Um, you're building diplomatic relationships with others. But the state doesn't stop. You know the forestry. For, the, the, the the trees got to come out of that forest. That river's got to be dammed. Uh, that mine's got to be dug. Uh, there is a point at which confrontation is inevitable. And are you going to defend your lands and your future generation uh, mm-hmm. through the tools you've revitalized mm-hmm. culturally?
1: Or, yeah. I, or
0: mm-hmm. is it, you know, violence? And I, don't, I don't mean to be steering the conversation to, mm-hmm. towards, you know, yes, say violence is the answer, but mm-hmm. I think it's a tricky uh, question to try to answer for those of us that are thinking about... Um, Uh, what the future of our community looks like when you still have this uh, settler colonialism uh, encroaching on lands and territories
1: and I think what the thing is too if we talk about this dynamic pressure of like different groups of people whether it's like people that are trying to protect and preserve the environment and then people that are trying to develop and extract resources the runway that you're running out of time is is the fact that all of these things are finite right and the resources are finite and you know, we might, we think about like indigenous futurisms, you know, 50, 100 years from now, 150 years from now. And it's like, actually, if we don't do something dynamic or provocative, you know, very, very radical, we're actually not going to have land, water, or any type of food or ecology to, to live off of, right? The UN uh, just released a report today about how there's just going to be a massive collapse of biodiversity and that's our entire ecosystem right, that's the tenuous balance of creation that exists in a very precarious state and that might just collapse before we can, you know, develop sound policy or rationale that's going to talk about, you know, the implementation of UNDRIP, right? right? Like,
0: yeah, an ur- I mean, urgency
1: this... that's ignored in that kind of
0: sure. space Sure, sure, and I mean this is getting to sort of monkey wrenching and quote unquote eco-terrorism where maybe it's not violence it's not interpersonal violence or intercommunity violence but it's you know speaking up for the land defending the land using potentially violent tools you know can you be violent towards infrastructure? I think you can. Yeah?
1: Well like and especially like if you look at some of the stuff that happened on No Dapple right like people were um, you know chaining themselves to bulldozers and things like that right? Like
0: yeah, but and that I was makes, still within yeah. the non-violent frame, mm-hmm. you know, the non-violent mm-hmm. movement frame. Mm-hmm.
1: So if they had like blown up a bulldozer,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. that would be that would be getting that would be getting more mm-hmm. violent, I think, going mm-hmm. down that path.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm still. I mean, you know me. I'm a.
0: Nihilist. Uh, yeah.
1: So, <laughs> so in like... some
0: ways, it makes more sense for you to be like, yeah, violence, we're all going to die.
1: <laughs> we're all going to die. What? What's the point of making it painful and stabby?
0: Okay. <laughs> that type of nihilist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hey, we're both like, well, I'll speak for myself, you know, middle class Indian driving in the fancy podcast car here. Uh, yeah. But, you know, personally. We're just, on eco just, mode. Okay. <laughs> But I come to the same conclusions that you do. You know, yeah. reflecting on, reflecting on what my my children would mm-hmm. think and and feel, mm-hmm. and uh,
1: and you don't regret your grandparents for not of taking Of course not. Arms. No,
0: I, I think that in some ways they defended. They're the reason that I'm here, mm-hmm. being able to do the work that I'm doing, and mm-hmm. and making sure that my my children's generation is going to be more indigenous than I was in my generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I don't. I don't. But I do have, you know, sort of fantasies about, you know, like the peacemaker. Okay, let's just take, oh, maybe we won't use the peacemaker, but fantasies about indigenous people across the continent being like, yo, these white guys that are coming here, these white devils are, are coming to take your land. Unite and push them into the sea. Uh, I think about that from time to time. You know, Pontiac, come on. I, mm-hmm. Hard, hard to hard to hold anything against Pontiac yeah mm. or many others that did uh, mm. uh, resist violently yeah. or defend themselves with uh, with violent means.
1: and there's I think those harsh, harsh lessons too right because that's what's gets what got our communities or like I say indigenous communities into a situation of like you know, the massacre I wouldn't need because at the end of the day, if we're fighting, fighting can tend to be gendered. It's most likely going to be um, men that are harmed. And when colonizers come to kill Native people, like, they kill women and children, they annihilate our whole communities, right? Like, those are, I think, sacrifices that aren't, that don't become part of our consciousness, right? We're more concerned about um, safety, and security mm-hmm. and what what maintains that right in a very tenuous way
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's love we're talking about
1: we're talking about Kunikorshra yeah.
0: yeah we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about uh, peace yeah. yeah so I don't know if um, I don't know if we can expect the violent rebellion uh, mm-hmm. that that Maurice Sinclair doesn't necessarily predict or warn against but raises as mm-hmm. a legitimate concern I mean yeah. discursively yeah maybe there are individuals out there that uh, have those tendencies or predilections mm-hmm. or are entertaining that approach but I would say um, given the non violent activism generally of indigenous peoples except in those rare cases where we are defending ourselves mm-hmm. uh against disproportionate force um overwhelmingly it doesn't seem to be on the radar
1: Mm-mm. it's not in our consciousness and i think that's like the the main thing right we're we are a uh, peaceful happy people
0: <laughs> did you hear that cesus
1: <laughs> yeah uh, there uh we're gonna be on so many watch lists
0: <laughs> uh in our last podcast somebody angrily tweeted at us tweeted at me Saying the only people that listen to our podcast in Ottawa is white consultants.
1: Yeah, I have a huge... Shout out to my fan club in Ottawa and all of my uh, friends in Ottawa who listen to this podcast. Um, we white have,
0: consultants, some of Courtney's friends, and mm-hmm. Cece's.
1: Yeah, so we have about 10 listeners in Ottawa. <laughs> I'd say like 80% of our listeners are in Toronto. Well,
0: that's great, that's mm-hmm. great, yeah. that's great. I don't know if... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so... Did, mm-hmm. i guess we came, we came to some pretty firm conclusions um mm-hmm. at least from our personal perspectives mm-hmm.
1: just talking about how much we agree with each other yes
0: yes <laughs> yes well it's sort of a frog <laughs> conversation you know I, I think if we if we were to have the conversation ultimately we would i think come to the same conclusions if we weren't recording a podcast right now mm-hmm. but we might have some other things to say
1: uh mm-hmm. more short words Maybe? No. I don't know. I think that I. I think we're. I don't know. Maybe a little bit more sappy. Maybe a little bit more uh, talking about uh, very the great sappy. Uh, great Yeah, like, you know, the. Uh, stuff. But, like, that idea, right? Those ideas of, like, what does it mean to cultivate and restore our livelihoods and live within an indigenous worldview? Or, or especially for me, or to, to practice, to consciously be Haudenosaunee, to. To put those efforts out and to 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 do that and uphold my own humanity and that of my family and nation, it's like actually it's these that idea of like the mindfulness and the consciousness to come to peace, and and what does that mean, right? And I think that that dignity that is afforded to people who do that who kind of uh, you know eschew the colonizer and just you know, a lot of people I know that are Longhouse people that are just kind of like don't pay any mind to like other indigenous nations and other people and just are there for their family and our community like I, th- I think a lot about that right and they're just kind of like not worried about it and they they do the best they can right yeah, and I yeah. I have so much such a profound respect for that
0: yeah I mean we have stories too we have mm-hmm. the story of the drum is really a story about the consequences of violence mm-hmm. you know what violence does to our communities rips the, rips our communities apart this was even before settlers came mm-hmm. um, and of course we have seven grandfather teachings which are ultimately all about uh, mm-hmm. peace and love mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah on the other hand well not on the other hand but by way of ending this podcast um, you can get pretty angry thinking about Alberto Kiramel's incarceration and Mapuche land defenders. And um, you can get angry a lot of things yep. that indigenous people have to put up with in this settler colonial state. Um, so free Alberto Kiramel. Go support the Mach- Mapuche land defenders. Support your local indigenous community struggling against the state in nonviolent ways.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. That's about it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, take care, everybody out there on the Red Road. And uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Bye.
1: You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast, created by Courtney Sky and Amy Green sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I've
0: been driving in
1: my Indian car To the pound of the wheel